Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Westy, how are you brother? Good Chris, <laughs> uh, really well. nice and sunny down here in Wales. Oh, mate, you're looking, uh, uh, you're looking healthy. Yeah, yeah, made it through COVID and the energy crisis. Currently, it's one thing after the other, but we're still here, still surviving. Mate, your story is just absolutely fascinating. I don't usually do this, but I don't want to get it wrong. So I'm, I'm just going to read off um, 17-year career in the Royal Marines Commandos, expert right. in Arctic warfare, jungle warfare, desert warfare, four tours of Iraq and Afghanistan with a special forces unit, author of four books. You've got a vested interest in, in mental health. You've started charities. We'll, we'll talk about them. Mate, if you don't mind, this is the bit I think will be fascinating for everybody out there to, to start with, uh, that we start with rather. It's that you're the pioneer of Trampface, whose missions for charity, adventure and awareness have included living homeless undercover in the UK and the migrant camp in Calais, yeah, running sure. the London Marathon after living homeless for a week, yeah, um, and crossing the English Channel in a nine-foot nine dinghy from France at night, unsupported, so like, if anything went wrong, it's good night Vienna and, you know, and, yeah. and, and unless you can swim 10 miles <laughs> yeah. undercover and undetective. I think this is what people are going to find fa fascinating so you, to test the defenses regularly breached by migrants from Europe. I read about Tony Blair, I think Tony Blair's labor. They actually come up and admitted that that was their experiment. We want to be like America. We want to be this big sort of um, community of the world and everything works. It doesn't in America, if anybody knows anything about it. I do quite a bit because my daughter lives there. And they openly said, well, this is an experiment. We want to open the borders, let people in, and we want to experiment and create this, as you said, multicultural, um, diverse community. You know, let's remember Tony Blair works for some very evil, evil people, hence why he's made billions off the, the miser misery and massacre of millions of, of people. If we can start with that and then we'll we'll go back to the beginning, so to speak. Yeah, it was it was a bit bizarre and it didn't just happen overnight. I say we've gone straight through that. It wasn't just a one wacky, crazy idea that we decided to do. Um it was a combination of years of building up doing doing um, ever more crazy stuff each year and then trying to top it. Um, but to that one day, like you said, how crazy it was, pe before we set out on it, we'd done with Tramp Fist, me and Paul, we had done quite a few crazy things up until that point. So it wasn't from the blue. But even though we'd done quite a few risky, dangerous things beforehand, this was the one where close. we only told close friends and family before we did it for obvious security reasons. We didn't want to get stopped from doing it or leaving the country to go to France to come back. Uh, but this was the one where people, close friends and family, turned around and said, do not do this. People who own tugboat and um, marine service companies, boats always on, on, on the sea, saying to us, pleading with us, do not do not do this. You are you taking your lives beyond risk. It's, something's going to go wrong. And if it does go wrong, because the chances are it will, because you're on your own in line for dinghy in the dark in the English Channel, there's nobody there that's going to help you. You're not. You haven't fallen off your bike on 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 the high street, and there's mm. the help's going to be there quick. It's not going to come. Needle in a haystack. You, nobody's going to find you. Um, so there was a lot of trepidation for people telling us that, and it was a build up. So we did the first tramp face, which was living undercover on the streets, um, just to get the awareness and see the challenge as well, adventure, and see what was going on. And then we went and did it in the migrant camp for the first time on our second tram face. Then we hitchhiked around the UK while living homeless. Then we cycled to London homeless over a week and then ran the marathon at the end of it. So it was like, it was a bit of pressure on us as well to keep up this um, this list 
this array of of crazy adventures and go well what can we do next and it was like getting to the stage like we're gonna have to go homeless on the moon next because we've pretty much done everything uh, it was a hot topic so this was 2019 we did the the channel one mm. it was like it's come back into into the news now the boats coming across was hot topic it had been a surge um earlier in that year 2019 as the spring weather started to kick in in the english channel they were starting to come across a big influx so we had a look at it it was topical it was current and it was fitted our theme of being bonkers so paul suggested it we looked into it and we thought yeah let's give let's give it a bash did you have a mission was it just like a dare or were you trying to demonstrate how easy it is to get into the country? Yeah, so uh, the whole Tramfis saga started with not just a dare, because I would say anyone don't want to do disturbance. Anyone can run a marathon. Anyone can do a skydive, right, or a challenge for charity. Um, again, not downplaying that. They're amazing, everyone that, that does it. But we wanted to do something a little bit different. And for our own stimulation as well, we didn't want to just cross the channel in a dinghy just for the sake of it and see if we could do it. That was going to be the culmination of a week of living in France. We went to Paris, first of all, so we took part in the LFS protests. I got tear gassed. I got it on video. It's brilliant by the French police. Um, we went to one of the notorious migrant camps in on the outskirts of Paris. What I was trying to say is, were you trying to prove a political point that it's easy to get in the country, or did you just want to want want to dare? We we did want to report on it, so we didn't go in with a bias. So we weren't there with a purpose of we want to go and prove this from this point of view of whatever yeah. part of the divide you're on. We didn't want to go in with any. We have got preconceptions. Everyone has about everything in life, but we didn't want to go in there and then to be the focus of what we're going to see and what we want to do. We wanted to go in. And reporting it, not from the BBC's point of view, not from some other extremist point of view, but straight down the middle, normal blokes, without an agenda, not backed by any corporation, any group. We're just independent on our own. Apolitical. Yeah, yeah, not getting paid for anything. Just go in and go, right, this is good and bad, whatever um, side of, of the divide it might fit, that narrative. We could go from one narrative that would fit one side to a completely different one on what we saw. We didn't limit on what we saw and reported on because we wanted to show a bias. We were, we're just going to go there. What we see, we don't care if it uh, if it riles anybody else's opinions or their narrative. We're going to see what's going on and we're going to report on it. But tied in with a bit of the charity stuff as well and a bit of our own um uh, need for adventure so yeah it was it was an open-minded we do we we were weren't just doing it as a dare we wanted to go in and see what is happening politically what's happening on the ground personally the people in these camps the people in the communities close to them how are they being affected how is it affecting when they do get to the uk so because we get told all the stories about the type of people that are coming over and, and so they're seeking refuge or whatever it is well let's go and see what what's happening at the actual point of of exit, if you like, where they're coming from, um, what's going on that on that side of it. We only see the boats washing up on on the shores in Kent. Well, what's happening where they're setting off from? So there was there was no set political agenda, but we we wanted to put any political or current affairs um, issues that we saw out in the in the limelight as well. Got you. So I'm fascinated, Westy, to know like the actual logistics of it, having you know. Well, we've all done a few expeds, haven't we? Um, but yeah. So, can you talk us through? So, what research? Yeah. And what training? So, I mean, research with respect to like where are the um, asylum seekers coming from? What kind of that research did you did yeah. did you do? And what kind of boats do they use? And then what what kind of training and and safety precautions did you take? Well, I think the beauty of the story uh, is that it was pretty much uh, nothing like a military operation, not well planned, not well thought out, and not well resourced. It was, we had a quick look at your usual channels, right, where they're coming from. We all know where the the entry and exit points were, from northern coast of France to um, Kent or somewhere on the South England coast. 
And but then we, we wanted to go a bit further afield, so let, let's go to Paris. And this coincided actually, we called it Trump Face Brexit because the day we landed in Paris, it was either the day or day before, was meant to be the Brexit day, not the vote. We'd had the vote, so 2019, this was when they said, right, when we if we vote yes or no, um, sorry, if we vote to leave, this will be the date in May, was it 2019, where we will leave the EU. Obviously, we didn't. Um, so it was it was great timing as because not only was Brexit meant to be happening, um, but we were also going to see then what was going on on the ground with this hot topic of people coming across in boats. We did a little bit more research into, right, Brexit's not happening. They're coming from the northern coast of France, but they're not just coming from their home countries and landing in the in Calais to come across. There's a route. There's a well-trodden route. How are they getting there? So we looked at the stop-off routes from first arriving in southern Europe, and it's Greece, Italy, Spain, and then Paris seemed to be a big stopping um, transit point for them. So then we looked into, and it's easy to find on the open source, what are people complaining about um, in Paris about these migrant areas? And we found one place called Paul La Chapelle, um, which was a no-go area for a lot of Parisians, where they'd allowed a big migrant camp to form. And that was sort of their staging post, as we found out as well. They'd go there, they'd take stock, they'd make some contacts, and then they'd move on to the northern coast of France. So for the research side of it, it was quite easy to find. We just typed in on YouTube or anything, where's there been riots or problems between communities, friction in France between migrants and the community. So that was quite easy to find. Uh, Logistics-wise, it was like all the other tramp faces. It was literally going to pack a backpack and we're just going to go there. Um, because we didn't have to book any accommodation, there was no transport, we just need to get there. And then we'll, that, the story's going to be fending for ourselves and, and working out where to go next by speaking to people. Okay, well, this area's somebody's mentioned this area or this route. Well, let's go and check it out. Um, so that was the initial side of it. And then it was just, yeah, buses and, and stuff there to get to northern France. Once we got to northern France, the plan to get across the channel was even more ridiculous. So we had a friend who owned a nine-foot dinghy with a small outboard on the back. The plan was we would tramp it through France for a week get back to the migrant camp in Calais, have a little look, because we'd been there a couple of years before, to see how much it, it had changed and the personnel had changed. And then he would and did come across on the ferry with his van, with this dinghy in it, deflated, meet us on the northern coast of France, which was a little bit of a military operation, meet an agent in, in the middle of the dark on, uh, on a shore. We would then inflate it, we found a slipway, which we'd recorded only from Google Maps. We hadn't even been there in person to see if we could actually launch from this point. We're like, right, well, Google Maps is a slipway going into the sea. We went there. We pumped up the boat with a, with a, um, a 12-volt van battery. Got in it. Uh, we saw we didn't even take a bearing, uh, as in a, a dedicated one. We knew we had one. Go north, and we're going to hit England. But luckily, it was a clear night, and there, we could see big red, the foot, sort of four red dots of a mast on the Kent coast. I went, right, let's just head for that. And at some point, um, God forbid, uh, we're going to uh, we're going to end up in England. So that was the rough scheme of manoeuvre for that. That and that is exactly how the planning went, which probably why people were telling us we're mental and we're going to die and not to do it. Yeah, I guess the potential hazards there are obviously it's a it's a very crowded shipping lane, mm. and those things don't stop for nobody. They don't even stop for yachts and stuff. They just keep on yeah. going and and don't look behind them. Yeah, and, and then, they're not going to see in the dark a nine foot dinghy. We had head torches on. They're not even going to see us from twenty meters away. Never mind yeah. a few hundred meters. And then I guess there's that you could miss miss your RV if you actually went north from part of northern france you could end up in the north north sea not not <laughs> not not with you not with the amount of fuel you had but no and, no. and then then of course the engine could could have conked out yeah yeah and then of course the big one this catches a lot of people that is fog isn't it if the fog had come down yeah we did lose track of that mast for for a time 
um, because the font did come in a little bit, not not massively, but we did lose um, track of our reference point for a bit. Did you take a bearing on it then? No. We just we knew which way roughly north was. And just... We just headed that okay. way. Um, did you know where you... Well, did you have a place in mind in England then where you were going to hit hit the beach? Yeah, I mean, close to um, Dover, hopefully, because our friend was then going to have to drive back across on the ferry and then come and meet us to collapse um, all the kit. Because um, obviously, if you're an actual biker boat, stuff the boat. Once you hit that pebble beach, boom, you're off. You leave mm-hmm. the kit, but... We, did, we had to pack it up because it was his. It wasn't ours. Um, so, yeah, we were hoping for Dover, not bang on Dover port because that would have been a disaster, but somewhere around that Kent coastline. It end up, ended up being Folkestone Beach, um, near Folkestone Harbour, in fact. So it was pretty much bang on where we where we actually landed. Gosh. i tell you one thing you don't hear a lot about in this country, but you, you we have heard of it around the Mediterranean, haven't we? And that's um, that's people washing ashore dead. Yeah. What? Mm. What? How come? Is that that the channels f- fairly safe, or is there something that we don't know? No, I think. I mean, they probably are dying in that English Channel, and maybe because of the currents and it being quite different, or what point of that channel they've gone under. They, the current's not washing them up on, on a beach. It's taking them to Zeebrugge or in um, Holland or somewhere. Yeah, yeah, got you, got you. Or maybe, maybe, maybe it's taking them back to France. Maybe looking at it from a wider point of view, maybe they are washing up somewhere, and it depends on who finds them of wherever they get reported. Mm. Is it could that could be a factor as well that you couldn't rule out? Did you have life jackets? We 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 had. We had dry suits. I'm trying to think now. We didn't have like the SFLG, like proper buoyancy aids. Yeah. And did you have a plan if if that boat, if if the boat got punctured, mm. I suppose you can puncture a cell or two on it and it and, it, and you're not in too much danger. Are you? Or, or was it just a, a single cell dinghy? It was just fingers crossed it wouldn't. <laughs> and <yeah. laughs> I'm getting too technical, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How long did it take to cross? Um, think about it. I think it was about four hours. Maybe four hours, 20, something like that. Um, yeah, it was over four hours. Was it frightening? The initial part was very frightening. Um, Paul, who, who was with me, he was a lot more experienced on the water, despite me being a Royal Marine for 17 years. Uh, he was more experienced than me. He, uh, he was quite confident, but when we set off, it was pitch black, inky black. Of course... The, the going into the unknown, we had no idea what was going to happen on on this channel. We had we had nobody to help us. Um, we first hit that surf. I, 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 and I'll be honest. I said to Paul, I, I said, "Mate, shall we go back?" Because these waves were hitting us, and we hadn't even gone hundred meters into the into the channel. And he he steadied me, and he said, "No, we, we will. It'll still be rough when we get here, but this is the initial surf. It's not going to be hammering us with these white waves um, the whole way." So. That first bit was <clears throat> was really scary. Uh, again, out once we got out into it, same as anything in life. Once you get into it and you sort of get your bearings, and you settle down into what's going on. You can you can console yourself with, okay, well it's settling out of it. I know I know what's going on. It's stabilizing a bit. Um, so that was a scary part. And then was the other one was the ships. We <clears throat> we had some like. They were close calls. It wasn't like some you've seen in movies where the, I mean, the bow and the ship was like 20 metres in front of us and we nearly, we nearly got hit by it. But in the dark, we couldn't work out. We could see the lights of these ships, but we didn't know that, how that light, how big it was, and therefore we had no reference of how far away it was to work out, well, if the light's this big, it must be this far away. So we could see lights all around us, but it wasn't until they got quite close because it was pitch, pitch black that we realised they were quite close and then we'd have to change our... our course because obviously they well they wouldn't even if they didn't see us um they wouldn't be able to and they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be able to see us so we did have to, we did have to do a bit of um ducking and diving to change our our course with the ship so that was that's quite a scary one and we did see what we believe 
were a couple of uh, Border Force Cutter ships. So, of course, then was the, we were going to get nabbed. Um, and <laughs> the scary part of that wasn't that we were going to get arrested. It was that we couldn't accomplish the, the challenge. How do you stand with respect to, you know, your passport? I know that... Yeah. I don't even know how it is with Brexit, to be yeah. honest. We, it, again, we, we didn't want to approach anyone official about it because they'd get wind of what we were doing and we get rumbled. So just from our own sort of deductions, we worked out that <clears throat> technically we were breaking the rules because we weren't checking in with the harbour master when we got to England or anything like that. So technically, it's a technicality, but it wasn't illegal. We had our passports on us in waterproof bags in our pockets. So if we did get nabbed, we're British citizens. We're out on a boat in the English Channel. We're not carrying out any actual migrants, apart from a blow-up doll, which I'll tell you about. There's a funny part of it. So we weren't actually doing anything illegal because we're British citizens, with British passports, not smuggling somebody, not leading the way for somebody. Um, so yeah, in our eyes... And um, as it turned out, because we did actually get arrested afterwards, we made it. We got across undetected and all the rest of it, but we we, we didn't actually do anything illegal. Yeah, I got you. Could do it. Yeah, I just wasn't sure if, like, when you leave France, whether you have to check out of of immigration and then the same. Yeah. Yeah, So technically, yes, we should have, but then it would have been you should have you should have, but. You does have, that you broken the law enough to be charged yeah. with a anything? Does that jeopardise you when you want to go back to France? Are they not going to go? Hang on, you haven't left here yet. What 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 are you doing? I don't think so. Um, trying to think if I've been. I haven't been back because that was yeah, that was not long before I've been to Spain and America since. It didn't stop me going there. Mm. So I don't think any any warning mark has been put on my passport while I've been in yeah. the states for time since. And you said uh, you got, you did get arrested eventually. What what happened there? Yeah. So we made it across, got to a Folkestone Beach, high fives. Yes, we've made it. And like I said earlier, of course, if we were actual migrants, that's it. Job done. You leg it. You're you're on the mainland. You're done. You disappear. Um, of course, we couldn't do that because we had the boat to pack up. We had to meet our friend and yeah, go back it go back, get back back home normally. So we landed on the Shingle Beach, unfortunately. So we had to lug the small engine, deflate the boat, and drag it up, all our kit and everything up, up this Shingle Beach. Our friend couldn't drive the van down to the promenade because there's no traffic, so it was a it was a pedestrian promenade. So um, we got to the promenade. We got comms with him. Said right, we'll park at the top of the hill. Um, he uh, had a comedy moment. He borrowed a wheelbarrow of a local council landscaper. And he was doing shuttle runs up and down the hill with all our kit. This took us about an hour. And in the meantime of this hour, which wouldn't normally have happened, of course, because we'd have legged it, somebody whose houses were facing this beach has got onto the police and gone, two blokes have just washed up on a dinghy in front of my house on Folkestone Beach, which is hot topic at the minute. You might want to have a look at it. So, of course, they did come and have a look at it. Police came. Then Border Force came, then Customs came, then the National, National Crime Agency came. We were interviewed for an hour on the beach, and then they decided they were going to arrest us. And how did that pan out? Um, it was a comedy uh, episode. So it started from the guy who'd come to pick us up. He was dressed like a Frenchman with a beret on, big tash, stripy T-shirt. He was going past these two initial officers that stopped us with the wheelbarrow and not appreciating the gravity of it. He just shouted over, I speak a nosy English. So of course that got their backs up and about an hour of questioning, we were just playing around with them. Uh, just wind up, what, what are you up to lads? Oh, we just, just out for a day out on the boats. Like what from Wales? Like, yeah, we got a bit lost. It's Cause we knew we, in our heads, we hadn't done anything illegal. What we didn't know was five minutes before we landed, two actual migrant boats had landed a few hundred metres down the coast. They were, um, I believe, Iranians. We d- And we didn't know this at the time. We, I didn't know this until I got back to Folkestone Police Station and they had to explain to the custody sergeant why they were detaining us. So these boats had landed and they'd been detained by the Border Force. Five minutes later, we've washed up. 
the kicker was when they'd arrested the, the guys in these boats, the two drivers were ex-military. So working for either a no borders um, activist group as volunteers or maybe paid by the traffickers, whatever it was, they were ex-military. So of course, during these interviews with the NCA and all the others, the question came up, well, what do you do for a living, Mr. West? I, I was serving at the time. Well, I'm a colour sergeant in the Royal Marines. <laughs> What do you do for a living, Mr. Dwyer? He was uh, an electrician, but we met in the reserves for John the Marines. So they're like, okay, well, how do you know each other? He said, well, I was in the Royal Engineers and we met there. So they're like, two and two together. These two are military. The other boats are military. They washed up five minutes within each other. They're part of that group. Boom, the cuffs came out and uh, that was us detained. So they got us, uh, yeah, they took back to the station and the interview was, was brilliant because I had all the videos on my phone of the crossing. So I said, just get my phone out. I said, you'll see there's no migrants in the boat apart from a blow-up doll, which do you ever watch Only Fools and Horses? There's a famous episode with Gary. Gary, when they 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 go to France, um, Del and Rodney, and they come back with this stowaway who they believe is an illegal migrant in the back of the van. So when my friend had come across to meet us with the van and, and the dinghy, he brought across this blow-up doll, he dressed it up, and he'd stuck a colour uh, imprint face of Gary on this blow-up doll. So he was our stowaway. So, of course, um, which was highly amusing to us, not so much the NCA. But during the, the interview process, they're getting my videos out and they're going, okay, for the benefit of the tape or whatever they say now. I can see Mr. West in the front of the boat and Mr. O'Dwyer is behind driving it. And then after about the fourth video, they started referring to Gary like he was an actual person. Like I can see Gary laid down in the front and it was brilliant. And the whole of this interview was them just watching my videos and me just laughing about it with them shaking their heads. The solicitor didn't say a single word through the whole probably hour until the very end. And they said, right, that's the end of it. Anything to say, Mr. Goldberg, whatever his name was? And he went, just in my 40 years of being a solicitor, I have never come across anything as ridiculous as this in my life. Um, yeah, so that happened. We So did they, they let you go then? No charges? We, we were... Um, we were charged under a suspicion of human trafficking, which carries a pretty hefty sentence. We were released, but we weren't um, under investigation. So we were released under investigation while they went through our flight. They took everything off us. I was packed to go to America. I was meant to go to fly to America from Heathrow the next day. So I had my luggage in my friend's van. They took the van. They took everything we owned, phones, a lot, and, and kicked us out of the police station. We're in Kent. We live in Swansea, South Wales. I just kicked us out. There you go, lads. See you later. They were like, well, how are we going to get home? That's your I've, problem. I've, uh, I've been in that exact boat in uh, Dover after we got caught tobacco smuggling. <laughs> the authority, <laughs> we got off the channel, uh, channel tunnel train and the authorities just took everything off us. Yeah. Even took my bloody bottle of rum. <laughs> just like you said, we Better go and find a bus stop then, fellas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, like, we couldn't phone our families because the phones are gone, everything. Um, we eventually got home. We found out that the, Nicky, who'd uh, driven us over in, or brought the van over, the police had been to his house while we were making our way home from Kent. It took us hours. Uh, luckily, his wife had just come back from school run, so she let them in. They ransacked his house. Paul who um, was on the boat with me. They didn't go to his house at all. I don't know why. I got home. They weren't waiting for me. My front doors had already been smashed through and boarded back up. And they ransacked my, my house as well. So they raided the house. And that's what I, that's the scene I got home to. Um, why they chose me, whether they thought I was the ringleader, I don't know. But that's what we uh, arrived home to there. Yeah. Do you think they had any sort of, you know, reason to do? Could they not just tell you were two blokes who, who were having a bit of a laugh and up for a bit of a stunt? Could could they not tell that? Exactly, and they could have. They well, they did. They they watched the videos. 
they listen to us. You, you had a, a blow-up doll in the boat. Exactly, yeah. And the videos of us coming across, and that's like, saying, oh, look at Gary, he's getting his head down, he hasn't said a word, he's like taking the piss. And even in the videos, as they're, they're narrating them, and they're saying, oh, because I was panning around, they're going, oh, we can't see any boats in the background, we can't see anyone else in the boat. So they're already talking themselves in, in this interview into that they believe that we hadn't done anything wrong. Um, what happened, because I truly believed when I walked out of that interview, it was going to be, all right, you had a couple of idiots. And we showed them we had social media pages for the charity fundraising. We fundraise every time we do these. Um, and the build-up to it. Of course, we didn't tell anyone on these social medias we were crossing the channel, but they knew we were living homeless in France, waiting for a big... Uh, final event um, and you could see the fundraising you could see it was I mean what what a human trafficker goes on Facebook and starts posting about being in northern France and meeting up with an agent and stuff like this nobody obviously um, so it was plainly obvious that we weren't trafficking people but yeah, yeah it was decided to arrest us um, and raid our houses yeah just can't help but thinking this is why the police have, people have just lost such a lot of respect for the mm. police. They stood by and did nothing for the last three years, except yeah. except arrest the you know the innocent people that had the balls to stand up against these psychopaths. Um, mm. um, you know, battered yeah. bat, battered seventy five year olds to the ground and arrested them for for going on a protest. Um, and then something like this, they they haven't got the intelligence to understand this is clearly a stunt with two blokes. What did your boss say when he got back to work then? Yeah, that was uh, that was tricky. <laughs> so I was just starting out to, it was my Easter leave. So I was on Easter leave. So of course, by the time I got home, I had to borrow my mother's phone, get in touch. I was color sergeant. I was the, the two weapons chief instructor, if you like, of the unit. So in the training office, pretty high up position. So, of course, the commanding officer and operations officer wanted to know what the hell was going on. Luckily, I did tell them roughly what I was... They knew about Tramp Face and the missions that I did every year. The training officer, and again, this was a stroke of luck because he is the captain. He just moved jobs to brigade, and he was the brigade commander's... Um, not the brigade, the uh, commandant general, CG, Royal Marines... Um, Bagman, he was his assistant at the time. So, of course, once this happened, the Royal Navy get hold of it, and Royal Navy, whatever, kicks in the door of CG, Royal Marines, straight in there. One of your colour sergeants has just been arrested for, for smuggling migrants across the channel. So, of course, the commander of the Royal Marines is like, oh, my God, when he hears that statement, it, believe in it, what the hell's gone on? Luckily, his assistant, who was my training officer three weeks prior, was sat in the room. I was just like, well, hang on a minute. Hang on. This is Westy. I know he hasn't been smuggling people across. Obviously, there's a situation to deal with, but he's not trafficking people. Um, so luckily, that happened, and that stopped the balloon going up big time within the Navy and the Marines. It was a little bit of, okay, well, let's just take a breather and see what has gone on. And... It was quite refreshing, actually, the approach of my ops officer and commanding officer, who'd read my first book, the commanding officer, actually. Still owes me a fiver for it. Um, he um, he got on the phone with me, and he said, right, yeah, we know what's happened, blah, blah, blah. But he, again, he said, we're not going to panic. We're not going to lose our heads. And rightly so, he, he made absolutely the right call. He said, the police are dealing with this. The National Crime Agency, they haven't... It's that they're investigating it now. So the, the military, the Royal Marines, can't get involved and start putting sanctions on you and charging you or reprimanding you even until the police have conducted their investigations and, they, and we hear what they've got to say about it. Police come back and say he's broken the law or whatever, then, of course, the military will, will mm -hmm. do their side of it. So it was great, and especially so because my flight to go and see my little one in the USA, which I'd missed, I rescheduled for the Monday, and again, they said, well, the police haven't said you can't leave the country now, so we're happy for you to still go to the States and see your little one. So the military side of it, it, it was brilliant. It was, yeah, right, it was, I was in the shit, and it was going to cause a stir, but they had a really grown-up approach to it and said, we'll let the police deal with it, rather than us get involved now 
and preempt the police, and the police come back and say, well, he's done nothing wrong. Um, so, yeah, that was quite good. Oh, result, result. Did you, you know, did did you pass on? I mean, this is like a research trip, isn't it, in a way? Did you pass on your, your findings to anyone, or was that not not really the aim? Yeah, we did. So um, we got debriefed, if you like. So, of course, I uh, don't go too much into it, but the people out there would be interested about how we managed to um, get to a, a covertly get to a point on northern France, cross the channel undetected and land on a beach. Where did we go from? How did we do it? So, of course, there was I was um, duty bound to relay that information, of course, and the questioning. I want to touch on your military uh, career. Won't go too deep into it if you don't mind, because I think there's more value in in talking about the mental health aspect and also um, the charity work that 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 you're doing. But when you said when you mentioned special forces there in your resume, were you were you SFFG or were you in the 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 squadron? Um, I don't like to mention uh, specific units because, as you know, with disclosure, people again, I don't get upset about it. I, I'm happy to talk about whatever. There's no, oh, I can't talk about this, can't talk yeah. about that. But you know the score. But I will say I wasn't any squadron. Um, I was based in South Wales. So I think a lot of people listening who know anything about the military would read between the lines. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can you can say and speculate if you want to mention units. I don't mind. What, what year did you join up? 2003. Four days before the Iraq invasion. So, yeah. yeah, sat at home on a Thursday night watching Sky News saying, Royal Marines, first troops across the border into Iraq. And I was, that Monday I was joining Limston. Gosh. At least you joined when training was uh, really, really easy. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, they, they made the tunnels bigger. What else What else you got for me? Uh, you old and bold. I can't, you know, they are, the tunnels are bigger. They give you an extra minute for this. And <laughs> it was a breeze. It was a breeze. All right. Ask me one question. And I know I'm not having a dig. Did you have duvets? Duvets. We weren't allowed them. The, the system was in place where you were allowed them as recruits if your train, training team allowed you. Ours didn't. Okay. Sorry. I'm in. in but they in, weren't allowed. I'm insulting my guests, folks. I know. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so you must have been in a few scraps then in four conflicts or four, four tours, rather. Can you give us, you know, for those people that haven't had bullets whizzing past their ears and things going bang, um, can you give us a, you know, an idea of what happens when it all kicks off and also, you know, what's it like to when you lose somebody the contact thing it's different it's difficult because a lot of people think it's it's going to be like the hollywood movies um i found that being shot at this will sound mental to some people was on the lower end of the scale of something that worried me or panicked me or rushed me um i was always more concerned and worried about being on an helicopter because it was completely out of my control and a lot of them were going down out there from mechanical failure and and landed in the wrong places, things like that. Or the IED threat. Is it somebody in this ground that's just going to, from no word of warning, going to blow up and do something to me or or one of the lads? It was the not knowing what was going to happen. So when someone starts shooting at me, of course, yeah, someone, you're in real danger because someone's shooting at you. But I always just felt... I was in, in control a little bit because I could still act. I could still do something that could affect. I could shoot back. I could get down. I could I could move. Um, I could move, go back into cover. So the actual getting shot at, a lot of times it was just like, oh, oh, somebody's contacted us. It's it's happening. There wasn't a, oh, my God, oh, my God, we're in the shit. There was a couple of times where, where it starts to get like that. But for me and everyone's different, there was, I wouldn't quite say an air of calm, but the realization of okay, something's happened, but I can still do something about it, um, and then you just go from there. And it's an old cliche: the training kicks in, all that stuff, and it probably does. It's not something in my mind going, okay, the training's kicking in, let's do it. But obviously, that does happen. Where you go, don't panic, just do what you're meant to do. But that's not me stood there thinking that 
that's what I need to do. You just you just do it. So yeah, and in a lot of ways, when the bullets start coming in, it's different to a lot of other situations. Um, I find, as you say in the book, there's there's nothing more chilling than hearing on the radio, man down, man down, man down. Um, it's just and it's just a confusion of right. Well, you know, someone's been hurt or killed. Who is it? How bad is it? Where are they? What can we do, if anything, about it? Yeah, it's a very defining moment when you hear that in your life and also when you see it first time as well. Yeah, of course. Some people do panic, though, don't they? Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's, you'll never know. Um, in one of the chapters, do much into it in Iraq, we nearly get kidnapped by Al Qaeda and it's fight, flight, or freeze. And we can all sit there and then. Imagine any situation in life, maybe a smackhead mugs you on the street. You think, oh, this is how I'd react. There's a bank robber in the bank and there's a granny next to me. He's pointing a gun at her. This is how I'd react. Or there's a burglar in my house. And you could think, right, if this happened and it hasn't happened to you, this is how I would react in that situation. Mm -hmm. But you don't know. Nobody knows. You can think and believe that you would. And until it happens, you have no idea. And it was the same with that in war. Until that person pointed a gun at my head and and it was in front of me, I didn't know whether I was going to be calm, whether I was going to shit my pants, whether I was going to run away or anything. It's it's only when it happens. And like you said, it's, some people do panic for the better in some cases. Maybe in a couple of ones, I should have been a little bit more hasty. Um, as it turned out, luckily enough, the way I did react uh, means I'm sat here today. So it, some people do panic for good reasons, for bad reasons, but... None of us will ever know how we're going to act in a certain situation until it happens. Yeah, got you. What about this um, attempted kidnapping by, I don't want to say the word, but the Al, one, two, three, four, Kaida. <laughs> we'll get, we, mate, we'll get demonetized just for saying that. that it, it, crazy, mm. It's a crazy place where I work, <laughs> the area I work in, I should say. But yeah, what... Yeah. Um, what what happened there? So we were in Iraq, Baghdad. He said it was a tour outside of the, the regular uh, deployments because the British weren't actively patrolling in Baghdad in 2006, this was. Um, the war on terror in Baghdad. So mm. we were, me and a paratrooper, we were going down to the American hospital each day. To in, uh, The rules were, if we're traveling on the green zone of Baghdad, which was the safe area, mm. Uh, not so safe as it turned out. You dress in civilian clothing, drive a civilian car, and carry a pistol. So you'd be discreet. Because there were a lot of contractors, media, that those type of people there, just private security, just a blending rather than walking around two of you in uniform. So each day we'd go down to the American hospital, the cash, uh, to help out, slash chat up the nurses and use their welfare facilities. Um and on one occasion, we were driving back to uh, our base and we got stopped around about by, well, the first indication was the four people, had, um, gunmen with no badges or um, uniform or anything, had descended on this roundabout with AK-47 and started stopping traffic. The next thing that happened was a, a lone one walked straight out in front of our car, which it was it was us. We targeted us. They'd obviously been watching us leaving this hospital each day around about the same time. Because when you go into the hospital, it's private security. So we have to show our ID cards, one saying Royal Navy, one saying British Army, unload our pistols. So it's not hard to work out who we were. Lone gunman walks out, AK-47, straight straight down the windscreen, uh, points straight, at, straight at, at, at us. He then starts pointing to try and get us out of the checkpoint, take us out, which was right next to us, out into the red zone, wider Baghdad, which is then clearly the Wild West, and we're at the mercy of whoever's waiting for us. We didn't start shooting. We delayed him, delayed him, acted like we were playing along, um, just to buy a bit more time until we could get out of the car. Uh, eventually, then we did jump out of the car, draw our pistols, make them ready, and basically stand up to him and say, well, no, you're not going to kidnap us without, without a fight. They then realised that the two stubborn Brits weren't playing ball. They then tried to pull uh, a Land Cruiser over with two American ladies in it. Um, I'm assuming to switch, fight on to kidnapping them. And luckily it all came to um, an end because 
they tried to stop unbelievably an American armed convoy to buy a bit more time to snatch us. And of course, the American armed convoy were having none of it. Started cocking their 50 calibers. At which point I said to Mark, the patrol with me, we won't start shooting now because if the Americans see two guys in civilians um, shooting, they're gonna, we're going to have a lot more firepower than five AK-47s. Um, and then luckily that, that diffused the situation. Um, yeah, so that was the, in short, the Iraq, the Iraq kidnap attempt. It, I gather it, it wasn't a good time for you. No, uh, it was really unfortunate timing. So I left. My official discharge was um, February 2020, a month before the, the initial COVID lockdown. Um, I'd done 17 years. I could have stayed in. I could still be serving now doing my full 22. So I sort of had the decision. I was color sergeant. They, they'd rather keep me in. Experience, qualifications as in a training role. But I would have been downgraded because of deaf and deaf in the left ear. So it's bilateral hearing loss. So I, w- I was going to have a backseat job, which I had a decision. Do I want to hang around for the sake of a job that I no longer got that appetite for? Because it's not what I joined for or what I had been doing or the career path I chose. Or go out on a high, looking back fondly and try something new. Because I'd done, if you told me before I joined everything I'd do, I wouldn't have believed you. It's, it, it, everything and more. So I was like, let's, let's go out on the high. Let's take the medical discharge. I'd already bought a business in Swansea. Let's go and try something new. So I made that decision. And then, unfortunately, uh, a month after I got discharged, the business got closed because of COVID. I live on my own. I've got a young daughter. She's eight now who lives in America. So, of course, I couldn't go and visit her, which was one of the big decisions for leaving the court. My own business. I can go to America whenever I want, within reason. Uh, so, I lived on my own. Business is closed. Can't go and see my daughter. I had money in the bank. I got no personal debt. I had my pension lump sum paid out. So I didn't have to go out and get a job. So for the first time in 20 years, I had absolutely no accountability, responsibility, um, structure, nothing. Transition for the military is quite difficult anyway. But going straight into a lockdown with living on your own and your business clothes and all the rest of it, don't have to go. I'm not forced if I was forced in having to go out to get a job to pay the bills, then that could have tempered it a bit. But I wasn't. And I just descended into months of just lost my way. I did I did just didn't know what to do. I didn't if I was like, well, if I live on my own, I got no job. If I don't get out of bed or if I don't leave the house for a few days and I just sit in my pants drinking whiskey, nobody's gonna be picking up the phone going, Why haven't you come into work? Why haven't you reported in or whatever? Mm. And yeah, coupled with that bad timing, it is my fault. I'll never blame the timing or anything or anyone else, but it created a perfect storm to allow me to go into this dark period of depression and drinking too much. Yeah, well, it's our curse, isn't it, as as veterans? Uh, um, and it's a yeah, it's a it's a. It's an easy thing to do, and it and it seems the right thing to do at the top. Not not necessarily the right thing. It just seems just an easy way to, yeah, you know, shift your mood, I suppose. But of course, that at, at the same time, you're not realizing that your life's spiraling down, and your mood's actually getting worse. Yeah, and you you're actually numbing yourself to the beauty of life. And uh, as you can tell, I speak from. Great experience. <laughs> mm, yeah. Um, yeah. And I'd end up in hospital. I'd end up in hospital. And that would be the... I'd just go on drinking binge. I wasn't, I wasn't doing drugs or anything like that. Just drinking, drinking. Wasn't going out harming anyone or wanting to cause destruction apart from myself. And some at some point, an intervention would happen. Friends and family would go, around, well, where the hell is he? What's he doing? An ambulance would get called and I'd go to hospital. He'd detox me for a week. I feel like shit, and right, you've got to get a grip of this. I'd leave, and then I'd be on good form, um, back on top form, cycling, training, doing all the rest of it. But then it just seemed to be no end in sight for this COVID and all the rest of it, the business that was going to reopen, and then just have a bad day. Or even I'd just go, oh, do you know what, I'm doing quite well, let's have a couple of drinks tonight. But then there was no backstop then. Once it started, there was no job to go to the next day. There was no drive back to camp. There was... 
no daughter had to take to school or plan a visit to. There was no backstop to to stop me going mm. spiraling back into it. And plus, there's a plus. There's a big hangover, isn't it? That you want to you want to kill with hair of the dog. Mm. It just starts a cycle, you know. Same. God, you must have been hitting it pretty hard to have to detox. Um, I, I worked in substance misuse for three years and, you know, I saw people that if they wanted to come off it, they had to go to, you know, to some unit or hospital, whatever. And, uh, yeah. um, yes, yes. Did and yeah, I mean, it was just day I uh, went into intensive care. They found me in a ditch, in a coma. A nurse luckily found me. I'd escaped from hospital, got back on it, straight to the shop, neck the bottle of gin, um, was walking back to the hospital. That was my plan. I, was, oh, I can't stand it, can't cope with it in here in this big ward. I'm going to go and have a drink. I'm going to come back. I didn't make it back. Collapsed in a ditch. Nurse walking into work in the hospital found me, unresponsive. Ambulance. I woke up. Uh, from a coma, the the nurse when I woke up, she said they didn't think I was. They think I, they thought I'd gone too far, and they were just astonished and so grateful that I did wake up. Uh, intensive care, all the tubes in me, and all the rest of it. So it wasn't just it wasn't just a few day bender in Blackpool like we've all done over the years. It was sustained drinking into oblivion to the point of death, and they saved me from. If that nurse hadn't found me in that ditch. There's no doubt I would have died in, and I should have died in in that ditch. Yeah. What have you found handy then, Westy, to you know to get the balance back in your life? Do you have any strategies? Do you have any support groups? Do you is do you have some sort of mantra? Yeah, big time is a lot of people were fixated, and that's why mental health is it's a sticky subject in well in many ways. But some people were saying to me, right, the only the only solution is rehab, four weeks, six week residential stay in a rehab centre, blah, blah, pay 12 grand, blah, blah. And I'm saying, no. I was like, well, that could work. But what about all the people it didn't work for? Amy Winehouse and all the other famous celebrities. And it didn't work for them. So that's not the only solution. So my mind was like, I just need to get back to what I was doing when I was happy in the Marines, trips away, training, having. I can't sit still. I haven't something that's that was the problem. Is I'm sat still, I'm not motivated, not stimulated. So my my view was, well, rehab can be anything you want. It doesn't have to be a residential stay. Rehab can be me, me sitting down with a couple of you going, right, this is the plan. I'll get up at this time, I'll train. I'll then if you want me to, I'll speak to a professional for an hour, even if it's on a video call. I don't have to go meet them. I'll speak to, I'll I'll open I was open to it. I'll go and speak to professionals. After that, I will go and do something in the business. I will plan something else. So it, for me, it was just, it was purely structure. I couldn't just sit around and do nothing because that was, that was going to end me. So yeah, my rehab was, I don't need to go to this residential because that would have been worse for me because I'd have been sat there thinking, what's going on in my business? What's going on back home? And I wouldn't have been able to relax. It'd have been great in many ways because it would have taken a lot of pressure off me. But yeah, mine was, right, let's get back to um, structure. And believe it or not, one of the biggest barriers into that was PTSD. And not because I got it. I'm not saying that I haven't got it. I probably have. Uh, many people probably got it in some format. Mm. Um, but it was because when I opened up to these professionals, the doctors, and said, I'm struggling. Okay, what's happening? I'm feeling a bit depressed. I'm feeling down. Uh, I'm struggling. Okay. Well, uh, and I, I wouldn't mention my military background or PTSD or anything. I'd just say I'm, I'm on a rough patch because that's what I truly believe it was. And I could, I could easily have said it's PTSD. And they go, okay, well, what's your background? Blah, blah. And eventually Marines would come up. Okay, combat. Yeah, four times. Boom. The com the, any conversation would stop. You've got PTSD. We will get you referred to so-and-so. And I'm trying to say, don't, I don't think I have in this instance. I might have it, and I probably have in other ways. But I'm not saying this is why I'm in this hospital right now or I'm having this period. I'm saying it, it's become a around. it's become a bit of a cop out, mate. This whole Pete, it's it's so misunderstood that, that I say this a lot just so people can understand. Most of us joined up with PTSD. We had damaged childhoods. 
when squaddies and marines and and well when service personnel leave they've been taken care of for this 22 years or or in my case it was seven years everything you get paid in sickness and in health you literally don't worry about anything other than saying yes sir and like buying a three thousand pound mountain bike (laughs) You know, it it, it 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 and going on the piss whenever you that that that's like the 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 limit of your responsibility and your worries. And then, of course, when you leave, life's very different. You enter a world that's strange to you. There isn't a safety net. You have to pay bills. You have to pay them. Yeah. You have to make a point. You did it. And of course, when you're conditioned to you know to drink to uh, you know uh, every opportunity as as we were in, in the military. You start doing that, and then, of course, as we've ascertained, your life spirals, whether you like it or not. Yeah. You know, your 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 life spirals, and you start to not to fulfil these responsibilities. And before long, you've lost. You, you know, you're either facing death, or you're facing homelessness, or or you're just living with a big mental health condition that's driven by um, by your behaviours. In this case alcohol right there's nowhere in what i just said i talked about combat was there when i was on active service i loved every minute of it even when you know even when people around you are getting shot um i wouldn't say that i wish that i would wish for that but when it happened i found it really really exciting i thought this is what what i joined up for and uh and of course, you're you're an adult as well, and adults have the ability to compartmentalize stuff. I know that there's people in conflict have seen horrendous situations, sustained, sustained, sustained. I mean, you know, I mean, First World War for crying out loud, bloody hell! <laughs> you're living in a trench where you go over the top. You Imagine. literally literally know ninety five percent of you are going to be dead within 20 minutes it's so i'm not i'm not saying that you don't get traumatized in war i'm just saying until it's recognized that the military recruiting pool generally you know there's a significant percentage of very damaged young people and that that damage because it's never resolved because you live in this protected environment it's when you come out that damage then catches you know that catches you up then you add to that the fact that you lost a good buddy you know um in in, in combat and that then more like acts as a catalyst to bring all this yeah. Tra- yeah. trauma back into your life again and it's another got- strand to it yeah I've I've worked in you know I've worked in health uh, well I've worked in mental health learning disability substance misuse asylum and so many people lack any form of life experience that a they put on a mask when they're at work because that that then legitimizes them being a bit crap at life and secondly, they seize on narratives like what you've said. Oh, he's serviceman, right? Let's get him down for PTSD. You know, it used to be like the old days. If you went, if you wanted Valium or something, not that I've ever done this, but you know, you just went to your doc and said you, you're feeling a bit, you know, stressed. Oh, without any thought or looking at alternative options or you know yeah. how to deal with this. No, yeah. straight out with a prescription pad. Right, let's get you on some Valium and. And that was the ruin of some, you know, well, not the ruin, but it, it, it plagued, you know, it, it plagued yeah. their lives. So, yeah, spot on. It's and it's for a lot, not everyone. I was like everyone up in that in that field, but it's the easy way out from. Like you said, it, and it all, and it got to the point with me was because, like you said, they can just go, yeah, oh, Valium, yeah, oh, he's done. I've, I've prescribed, I've diagnosed it. That's it. That's a bomb done. He's, he's got what he needs. And they think, all right, Marines, combat, oh, PTSD, obviously, yeah. Let's get him off. He can see PTSD specialist or whatever. And it is a barrier then. But then also it's, for me, I've sat there and it was two things. One of them was going to me, well, have I got it? Is it why I'm in this situation now? Is it because of PTSD trauma, serious trauma? So I'm obviously now double, double guessing it and thinking about it. And also I'm going, do you know what? Is it just easier? For me to just say, well, yeah, it is PTSD. 
because that's all they want to tell me. They don't want to listen to what I'm just going on. I'm in a rough patch. I'm suffering depression, mild depression, which I believe we can get out of. Is it easier for me to just go, do you know what? Forget it. Yeah, I've got PTSD. Just send me to someone to, who's going to listen to me um, properly. Mm-hmm. And it's such a barrier then because, one, if they do do that, if I say that and they, or they do do it, I end up in that thing. I just go along with it. You're taking away help for people who have got serious that type of PTSD. Like I said, there's so many different strands to it. Mm. But somebody who's, who got the PTSD that they'd accuse him, accusing me um, of having, you're taking help away from them because there's one less per- professional to help the people who do the need the help that they're going to waste time on me with. Um, yeah, it does seem uh, an easy solution uh, a lot yeah. of times. You just pause it and get rid of it. Oh, yeah, it's, it's PTSD. And like so- I said, it's, uh, a lot of it comes, some people have got it from, like you said, the horrendous act they've seen it they've witnessed it they're reliving it that is what i would call sort of traditional what we when somebody says ptsd that's what you think of isn't it mm. whether we like it or not i do anyway but of course there's so many other strands there and like you said it's it can come from something else for me i don't believe it's part of that i like you said i truly appreciate everything i got to see in the military the good and the bad a lot of it was so exciting even the, the dangerous stuff well especially the dangerous dangerous stuff and is that the reason why I struggle afterwards? Because of trauma? No. But like you say, and that I'd had that life for 17 years of, and not just everything being looked after me, I had a, I had a, a non-stop lifestyle. When I wasn't in the, in the call and they gave me leave, I'd go and cross the channel in the dinghy or live homeless. i travel, i travel South America. They give us eight weeks off after one Afghan, which is unbelievable. I said, I ain't sitting around for eight weeks. I'm off to South America with a backpack on my own, and I'll just work it out when I get out there. So I'd had this life of always having something to do, always having, whether it was structure, as soon as they released the reins of the structure for a bit, I'm off on an adventure. And then when it stopped, all the trauma, maybe, that I hadn't had time to process because I was living life at a 1,000 miles per hour, caught up with me. And eventually, all these things that I didn't have time to think about for years and years and years, even, like you said, it might have been little things. Eventually, they now caught me up because I have stood still for a for the time being, and it's all come back in, in a different way mm. as opposed to classic traditional PTSD. Is that what gave you an interest in, in the charity stuff you do? Do you want to talk a bit about that? And you're also up, you're also up for one of these, aren't you? Oh, <laughs> I nearly, nearly broke it, look. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's it's the Welsh one, so I mean, not as esteemed as you, mate. And I've listened to a few, few podcasts. You're not the biggest fan of us uh, Welsh boys, but uh, it's all good banter. Mate, yeah, it's just it's it's just my old nan said, if you see if you find a good Welshman, shoot him before he turns bad, and <laughs> that just stuck with me. Yeah, fair one. Fair <laughs> no, one. I I'm joking because I'd like to get Pancho and Pritchard on on the show, so I better um, you know, um, yeah, I bet I, I got a video of him and I beat that on the piss with us, so I'll send it. I'll send it to you, mate. Yeah, please do, please do. Yes. Um, yeah, so obviously this is giving you an insight into an angle that a lot of people don't un- really understand very well, do they? Is is that what's fueled your charity work? Yeah, so we started this salute, spelled S-A-1-U-T-E. S-A-1 is the postcode of Swansea, where it's based, play on words. Uh, um, or salute, military reference. Is we, we were doing these tramp face things for over the years, myself and Paul, raising a lot of money for SAFA a great charity, a national one, and a couple of friends who were doing their own fundraisers for other charities. And we got, we did, after the marathon one, we raised like £12,000 or something. And we went to like their presentation thing afterwards and it was all the staff of SAFA there. And we were just like, do you know what? Where's that twelve grand gone to pay mm. people's wages and adverts? And Which I'm not putting down because I understand when a charity gets that big, they've got to run it like a business, of course. They have to pay people and whatever. But we just thought, well, are we happy just sending all this money into a corporate world? Because I look at charities like Save the Children and all these type of things. And how are they affording to have ad- adverts on TV like 10 times a day during the, during, like, the day? You're like, yeah. Companies aren't doing that for free. You've got to have a marketer, somebody to video it, actors, blah, blah, blah. costs a lot of money, which, of course, which generates funds. But it just didn't sit well with us. We were like, do we want to be giving it to these corporations is what I, I how I see them mm. paying massive salaries yeah you're going to pay people but does the the managing director of one of these 
um, need 300 grand a year or whatever. No, they don't. Um, so we thought, well, if we're going to keep doing these, why don't we start our own one? We won't pay ourselves, of course. We'll be trustees and we, we know exactly where every single penny goes. And what does Salute do and, and how do you, what kind of people, I mean, you're helping veterans. on. Yeah, so we, yeah, we've got a few things. We managed, it's based now on my business, Copper Bar, because it came homeless itself um, because we're not one of these big ones that pays for offices and we didn't want to be paying for offices. So it lives rent-free in my business. So its offices are registered here, which is great then because it's not spending, it doesn't spend a penny on overheads, wages, or I mean, bills, rent, anything. It's all operating costs, spending it on what we want to spend it on uh, for the better. So it does coffee mornings here at my business. And of course, I provide the facilities and staff. And we manage to raise enough to buy a plot of land in Brecon. It's in the lee of Penny Fan, which people bloody rave over. I hate the place. I, one, it's too, too touristy. And two, and two, I got a lot of bad memories of it. But anyway, it's close to Penny Fan. So we got about 1.2 acres of woodland there to develop as a veterans retreat for guys in the up there and just get away from it, get their families up there. And I've also started an initiative called Salute Cycles, spelled P-S-Y-C-H-L-E-S. I get that right because I spelled it wrong myself the other day and I came up with it. So it's play on words again, psych, head, cycles. So we do uh, free and subsidized cycle hire from the business Copper Bar for veterans or anybody if anybody came to us struggling mental health and well-being i'm helping a local charity at the minute they said you know what we've got a few people who they need a day out on the bikes any chance we can borrow blah blah yeah 100 percent they can um so they're the, they're the main the main strands of salute uh, as it stands here oh brilliant well and uh, what what we we'll do mate we'll put links below for all, all of your contacts do you want to just talk a bit about your, your books? Because you've written four now, haven't you? Four, yeah. Yeah, I've got four. So three of them are the Tramp Face ones, which we've touched on. So they're all true stories. Three of them are Tramp Face. I've got two more to write, the marathon one and the rubber dinghy one. So can't wait to can't wait to read that, uh, to write that. So, uh, and then my autobiography, which is the most recent one. It's, uh, at the minute, it's number one, the bestseller on Amazon in one of its categories, and it's number two in the other two as well. One of them is categories is Adventures and Explorers, which is a huge category. It's got, I mean, Sir Ranulph Fiennes and people like that in it. Um, so that's brilliant to see. And that one is a snapshot of, of my life as well. So joining the Marines, Arctic, jungle, desert, Iraq, Afghanistan. A little bit of my lone wolf travelling in between the gaps as well. So Bricks Up's not just a war memoir. It's got a little bit about me traveling the world. And then a little bit of the dark times that we covered on, uh, that we touched on as well. It covers that towards the end of the book as well. So that's doing really well. And I self-published them all, which for me for me is a, a really proud achievement. I got no GCSEs above grade D. Um, and I'm a bootneck. Yeah, I had all the banter. Was it written in crayons, royal? That's American banter. Um, but I, I wrote them, edited them, proofed them published them and marketed them all on my own. And I wanted to do that to test myself uh, to see if I could do it. Uh, Mate, you've done a brilliant brilliant job because it's not easy uh, getting a book out there. Congrats. We'll we'll put your uh, Amazon link below as well. Um, Massive thanks, Royal, for coming on the show. As I always say, I hope you've enjoyed that as much as I have. Yeah, friends, oh, massive love to you all. Please look after yourselves. If you can like and subscribe, click the notification uh, bell and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.